Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good morning, everyone. My name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm architecture program curator here at the Royal Academy. It's a great pleasure to welcome all of you today. It's a great pleasure to have this first partnership with the London Festival of Architecture. We are going to discuss today about construction and destruction of identity in the city, society, and how architecture plays a role in this. I would like to thank uh, our lead sponsor, uh, Taki Serami, who makes possible the architecture program at the Royal Academy, and also to the Drew Heinz endowment for architecture. If you want to know more about our program, please visit uh, our website and you probably also like have one of our uh, leaflets with all the rest events in this season. And now without further ado, I would like to welcome Tansi Thompson, uh, director of the London Festival of Architecture, who will introduce um, today's uh, program and also like the structure of the event. Thank you. Hello everyone and welcome to our inaugural uh, symposium for the LFA. Um, I joined the festival just over two and a half years ago um, and my remit was really to do two things with the festival. One, to raise its profile and to get the public um, more engaged with it across the city, um, but also to um, I suppose, raise the level of debate within the festival and to offer a platform for the architecture community but also the wider property and construction industry to come together to discuss and debate some of the real pertinent issues of the day. And so it's really exciting for us uh, to be sat here or stood here today um, opening the first of these symposiums. And as Gonzalo said, we hope this to now be an annual event where we have the opportunity um, with an audience such as yourselves and the sort of experts and collaborators and researchers that we brought here today to discuss um, a particular topic and a theme. So I just want to start by thanking the Royal Academy for hosting us here today and particularly to Gonzalo, who's been a major contributor to this project. Um, it's really, really wonderful um, for the festival to be able to work with organisations like the Royal Academy and to have these true collaborations of two organisations coming together uh, to jointly uh, curate a project. And I think that's really rare, not just in our industry, but across other sectors, to have this kind of true collaboration without ego um, and without contest and to really generate that de debate. So a massive thank you to Gonzalo and to Kate and Laura and the rest of the architecture team here. As I said, this is our, our first symposium, and for us it offers the, the first opportunity to really debate our theme. And as all of you know, the theme for this year's festival is identity. Uh, the theme came about actually in July of last year as we came to the end of last year's festival, the theme of which was memory. And we were very keen to come up with a theme which gave us the opportunity to continue some of the really interesting debates and discussions that happened as part of that, that month-long event. Um, and we sat down um, with Rob Bevan, who joins us here again today, and a number of our patrons um, and other collaborators and discussed what was really happening both for London as a city, what was happening for us as a profession, um, what had happened within the festival, and where we as a kind of country and nation and people were going um, forward over the next uh, year. And very quickly, as, as Rob will remember, within about 10 minutes of the conversation starting, everyone said, it's identity. 
Um, and that came out very, very clearly and I think has been established consistently throughout the year that we've been debating and discussing the content of June um, and particularly this festival. And for us, it was an opportunity to look at some of the big issues that we're facing as a nation, such as Brexit and some of those other conversations. But also, as we sat there in July, discussing the immediate aftermath of the awful events at Grenfell, it gave us an opportunity, we feel, to think about what the role of the architect is going forward, what the city looks like going forward, and what we as a profession, in the wider sense of the word, want that city to look like, who we think should live where, what sort of accommodation we think they sh we should be providing them, and how, they should be how we should be inhabiting that space. So for us, it's really, really exciting to be sat here today having two sessions, a morning session, which is going to be chaired by Rob, and an afternoon session, which will be chaired by Shumi, looking at the destruction and the construction of identity within our cities. Um, for us, both of those topics are really, I think, quite uh, radically important for us as a festival, and particularly for our roles as architects going forward. Um, and I really hope the panels today draw out some of those really core and pertinent issues that we're facing day to day in our work, practically as architects, and then also as uh, theorists and researchers, journalists and curators talking about those, those subjects and those areas. So for us, the construction of this symposium came about in a, a, I suppose, a way that we're quite familiar with in a lot of our commissioning, which is an open call. So we put out an open call earlier on in the year where we invited anyone to put forward a paper to be part of the panel. And we were absolutely overwhelmed by the contributions that we got. We had contributions from students, from practicing architects, researchers, from people all across the globe who were very interested in coming here and debating this subject. And that's a technique that we really um, feel encouraged by the response and something that we will be doing again and keen to do for next year's symposium. But what we've done is taken that core of uh, open call responses and then supplemented it with some of the people that we know through working with or whose research we admire or whose practice we admire to come and enhance and kind of evolve the debate. So I'm very, very pleased to welcome um, to, the, <laughs> to this hot seat uh, to chair the first session, Rob Bevan, a writer, academic, curator, journalist, um, who is a kind of core collaborator of the festival who, as I said, has been really um, important in developing not just this year's theme but last year's theme as well um, and who I think is going to share some very interesting thoughts with us this morning. Thank you, Rob. Well, I'm, the, I'm now actually going to share many interesting thoughts with you. I'm going to hand over to the panellists fairly swiftly but... Um, as, as Tamsi said, I'm the architecture critic for the Evening Standard, but I also uh, am involved in various other academic and non-other academic projects that um, cover issues of identity, um, and that might be uh, uh, attacks on architecture and cities as cosmopolitan places and as um, places uh, where identity is formed. Uh, and also the changes within London and how we are seeing the city change rapidly uh, through gentrification, through the closing down of venues and safe spaces and, and other matters. Um, so with that in mind, I'm particularly interested, as I'm sure you are, in what the our speakers have to say this morning. Um, is that microphone all right? It's hissing up here. Um, okay. 
we are living through a second wave of identity politics, I think. Um, if we take the liberation movements of the 1960s and 70s as the first wave, but this time around, it's an in an age of globalization and that tension between the local and the global and people's fears about losing identity. And also in a period where progressive alliances encompassing many different identities are foundering. Um, and so that multiplicity, is, uh, so like, notions of identity can be very double-edged. Um, they can lead to self-empowerment and belonging. Uh, but if weaponized, they can be exclusory of the other, of different identity groups, and, and there's a tension there that com comes with the issue of identity. Um, and clashes over identity are most obvious in times of war, but they also pervade London in peacetime, whether through gentrification or the demise of LGBT plus uh, safe spaces, or with Brexit hanging over heads, as Tamsi mentioned, over what it means to be a Londoner and who belongs. Um, our speakers today will be interrogating these issues here in London and internationally. Um, each will speak for 10 minutes and then there will be uh, 15, uh, sorry, 45 minutes of debate and questions at the end and we hope to get some from the audience as well. Uh, to start us off, we have Dr. Claire Milhurish, who is an anthropologist and a newly appointed director of UCL's Urban Lab, uh, where she has been working for some years. Um, and she and the lab has been doing lots of work in this field. She'll be talking today about how universities are engaging in issues of identity and heritage and how this affects local communities. Uh, then we have uh, Maya Ober, who is based in Basel and the founding editor of the research platform Depatria Deep. Patriarchized design, not easy to say. And she turns our gaze eastwards to Tel Aviv and explores two of its southern neighborhoods through a feminist and post-colonial lens. Then Verity Jane Keefe is an artist based in London with a particular interest in the public realm. Um, today, I believe, she will be talking about her practice in the regenerating outer boroughs of London with um, Barking and Dagenham as her focus. And then finally, uh, Rianne Williams is a poet uh, with an interest in narrative environments. And um, this morning she'll be talking about the buffer zone, either the side of the original green line that divides Greeks and Turks on the island of Cyprus. So thank you and Claire, wherever you are. <laughs> Hello everybody, it's great to be here. Um, in fact, this is the second event in the London Festival of Architecture in which I've been speaking about the role of universities in cities. There was um, a great event at the Italian Cultural Institute last week called Knowledge Territories. Um, I think this panel on the destruction of a city's identity raises a, an interesting question perhaps about whether a city's identity can ever be destroyed. I think cities are very resilient, in fact. Um, but I think it's certainly true that cities can be reinvented and remade. And what we see at the moment around the world, and thinking about a city such as Doha, um, is cities investing a great deal of money and effort in reimagining themselves and repositioning themselves in these sort of global networks of... Um, uh, 
of, of the sort of modern economy. So I just wanted to um, think about um, how, I mean, as in Doha, um, you see these images projecting a sort of new future for the city, um, a certain kind of occupation of the city. Sorry, I'm trying to work out where my images are. But also a sort of glimpse of the kind of people who are very much excluded from that kind of narrative of the future. And I think certainly we can identify a range of quite uh, um, urgent urban issues which do threaten the identity of the people and communities within cities. Um, and these include the very rapid uh, pace and the, and the very large scale of urban development to fulfill these kind of revisioning programs, whether that's in Doha or London or in China or really anywhere in the world that you look. Um, the social and environmental impact of cumulative housing crises and particularly the impact that those have on public health and the resulting fragmentation and reconstitution of place-based and networked communities and urban identities, as well as, of course, the ecological destruction of cities by unsustainable patterns of development and urban behavior. And we've heard a lot about the crisis with plastics in cities recently. So just turning to the urban laboratory, <clears throat> um, much of the work that we do is about charting these processes of urban change and particularly the impact that they have on different kinds of urban communities, and especially those less advantaged communities who struggle to make their voice heard in big, expanding, diverse, cosmopolitan cities like London. Um, and we're very fortunate, of course, to be based in London. We see London as a laboratory in some ways, uh, which is perfect for studying processes of rapid urban change, um, and that context of rich cultural pluralism within international networks of mobility and exchange, uh, yet also is a very uh, vivid testbed for looking at the causes and effects of stark social and spatial inequalities, urban deprivation, and ecological failure. And we see these materialized in the physical and built environment um, and reproduced across cities in the global north and south. So, much of our work is about uh, looking at London in that kind of comparative context in relation to cities like Doha and others. So just a quick glimpse of some of the work we do. We do a lot of work around community-based urbanism. This is one of our urban pamphleteers, uh, Regeneration Realities, which looks at the impact of uh, regeneration programs across London, especially at the sites of various uh, council estates in London, such as the Haygate Estate. These are some sketches by the artist Howard Reed, um, which uh, were made during a walk and talk event to record and capture the views of local residents on that estate. And here we also have um, a report that we did on LGBTQ venues in London. This was commissioned by the GLA's culture team in order to try and get a picture of how the closure of these kind of venues uh, is having an impact on the cultural infrastructure on London and to feed into the Mayor's Cultural Infrastructure Plan. And then turning to this theme of universities, this is the work that I've been doing on university urbanism, as I like to call it. Um, so this is a report that I produced in 2015. And it looks at a number of case studies which show that universities are expanding, 
They're expanding all over the world. Um, and very much against the backdrop of a wider discourse around the benefits that universities bring as anchors for regeneration in, uh, in city contexts. So these are some of the key issues that the research uh, puts forward. Um, it identifies universities as key drivers for the creation of new and regenerated safe, healthy and sustainable urban spaces. They're seen as fostering quality of life, civic participation, social interaction and opportunities for innovation. Um, they're recognized along with schools and colleges as important institutional actors for urban regeneration that can bring a range of benefits to urban neighborhoods, including widening access, uh, job opportunities, training, etc. And they're seen as anchors for sustainable and equitable urban growth in both the global uh, uh, north and south. But here we turn to an example of this kind of university-led urban regeneration, UCL's own UCL East campus development in the Olympic Park. And we have to acknowledge that at the same time these kind of projects raise significant questions about heritage and identity in the city. So in this context, in the Olympic Park, you can see the site for UCL East just within the southern boundary south of the um, orbit and then contrasting with the landscape of East London beyond it, a part of London which has been in a state of considerable decline following deindustrialization. So we have to think about the impact that universities have in these kind of contexts. Are they positive, uh, creative, engaged institutions? fulfilling civic responsibilities, participating in the remaking and reinvention of big chunks of cities? Or do we have to uh, understand that in many ways they have a destructive impact on the communities uh, which they join in these kinds of sites? Um, and I think if you look at the cross-section of the new UCL East uh, master plan, you can see that there's a kind of rhetoric around inclusion, participation. Um, I don't know if you can read this, but parts of the university being open to the public to provide a, a new kind of social hub, workshops and other kinds of facilities that are open to the community. Um, and all of this, of course, is very much part of what's now been renamed the East Bank Initiative in the Olympic Park that was launched by Sadiq Khan last week. This is a group of people from UCL East with Sadiq Khan. Um, so UCL East is part of this wider project, along with Here East and, of course, the VNA, Smithsonian, Sadler's Wells, UAL on the waterfront uh, site in the park. And this project has been uh, framed very uh, strongly as a key part of the Olympic legacy, the remaking of the uh, formerly Industrial Lee Valley um, <clears throat> as a culture and education quarter in which UCL as a, a high-profile London University will play the role of anchor institution for redevelopment that will transform this part of London and create new opportunities for communities. And UCL is not alone in this as my case study research has shown and um, a, a considerable amount of other scholarly work, particularly in the field of geography, 
There are a significant number of higher education institutions internationally which are critically re-evaluating their relationship with cities and the neighbourhoods in which they are located, drawing on this kind of development rhetoric of permeability, inclusivity and opportunity. And this is very much a rhetoric which also acknowledges the conditions of heightened mobility and intercultural contact in cities, but also the rising levels of inequality in contemporary urban life and the need for universities, the responsibility of universities uh, to address these problems. And I think what's quite interesting is the way that we see universities mobilizing these kind of discourses around heritage and identity quite explicitly. So the idea of university heritage, as in the case of UCL, looking back to the origins of the university as a liberal, outward-looking uh, university that created opportunities for students who at that time couldn't enter other universities, um, combining with the urban heritage of East London in this discourse around the creation of a kind of new heritage for the future, a sort of symbiosis of university and urban heritage at these sites. And so you can see here in the quote from the UCL East Master Plan from 2016, a reference to UCL East's emerging identity, um, the academic offering and public-facing events and programming will also help strengthen the identity of the area. So these two, seem, two elements seem very much in relation to each other. And we can find this rhetoric emerging at many other uh, sites as well, for example, the University of Pennsylvania, the American University of Beirut, uh, Durham University back in the 1990s, uh, the Federal University of Sao Paulo, these are all examples that I've looked at in my research. Um, where we see this idea coming through that universities can challenge, they have the power and the capacity to challenge the unequal distribution of cultural, social and financial capital which defines divided cities everywhere both through their own institutional restructuring to accommodate uh, widening participation agendas, particularly students from local working class um, and uh, BAME backgrounds or mature students with families, non-traditional students, and through the modeling of inclusive urban and public space. Um, and this very much constitutes a shift away from past ideas of the university as a project of elite universal knowledge production. So, just to conclude, we can see, I think, that universities are playing quite an important role engaging with an inclusive politics of development, which is framed by this concept of shared urban heritage. And urban heritage, really, rather than national heritage, a kind of um, urban identity that can bring together different groups of people in cosmopolitan diverse cities. And it encourages us to hope that we might think of universities then as agents of positive change in urban identities, with the potential and capacity to shape discursive and material spaces in which center and periphery might come together in unequal post-colonial cities. So just to conclude, as actors in urban development, universities are understood, of course, to have a primary responsibility for building place-based knowledge capital at metropolitan centers. But we have to remember that universities are also very often significant urban landowners and developers. And in many cases also, as at UCL, centers of critical urban thought. And so they have the capacity to widen access to urban space and resources, as well as education, and to promote a right to the city, 
quoting Lefebvre, which is anchored in concepts of adaptive, democratic, and cosmopolitan urbanism which transcend national identity and heritage, and, I suggest, contribute to the positive evolution of a city's identity. So uh, while we're waiting for the slides, I would like to thank the organizers for having me and having this opportunity to um, gather here and discuss the destruction of the uh, city's identity. There's probably um, no better example of, uh, of this process and more profound example of this process as uh, the destruction of identity of um, uh, and the story of uh, Jaffa Tel Aviv. Uh, so Shapira and Nevesha'anan are the southern neighborhoods of an urban entity which is legally called Tel Aviv Jaffa. And the hyphen that you see in the name is crucial to the understanding of societal, political, and urban processes taking place within this space. So it's the hyphen of division of dichotomy, the hyphen that divides between the colonizer and the colonized, the imagined collectivity and the facts, the Jewish and the other, the confabulated and the real. But the hyphen also symbolizes two antagonized cities and their respective identities following Sharon Rothbard naming the white city and the black city. I hope that you're hearing me well. <laughs> Um, so, um, the black city represents, quote, everything hidden by the long dark shadow of the white city, everything Tel Aviv does not see and everything it does not want to see. Um, so, Ifat Teherani, the resident of Shapira, said, it doesn't resemble any other neighborhood in Tel Aviv, but embodies all characteristics of Israeli society all the tensions the Israeli society is grappling with, migrant workers, Jews, Palestinians, a new population that has only come here recently and has good economic potential versus disadvantaged veteran population. So um, Shapira and Neveshanan were not built as the Zionist narrative of uh, Tel Aviv uh, has been falsely promoting on the dunes, as you see on the picture below. It was rather actually built on the grooves, on the orchards of a very flourishing city of Jaffa. Uh, so they were not a coherent urban continuation of white city, rather the inherent part of Jaffa urbanization. Uh, so it's the story of Shapira and Nevesha'anan, it's the story of conquest, it's the story of the uh, expulsion of the indigenous Palestinian population. It's also the story of creation of uh, no-go zones, no zones where women are being constantly sexually assaulted and raped and harassed. It's the story of antagonized architectural identities. And it's the story of how, um, pardon, architecture actively participates in destruction of a city's identity and the destruction particularly in this case of the other, of the unchosen, of the black, of the Palestinian, of anyone who doesn't answer to the parameters of um, following Nietzsche and Shiftan, quote, imagined collectivity within Orient. So today we will briefly discuss um, 
two sites that really embody broader processes taking part within those two neighborhoods. So the example of uh, well houses, a few remaining buildings, carries of Palestinian past of the Nakba, of the expulsion of the indigenous population and the colonialization the process went through, are the only reminders of the orchards once growing there and the farmers and merchants living in them serving as a physical proof negating this false um, narrative of the city built on the dunes. So um, one of the best prevailed wellhouse in Shapira is the house of Sheikh Murad, popularly called um, the Red House. So the fact actually that this house is being called the Red House uh, points a to this wider process of appropriation and narrative creation because it's not being named or called now within the city with its original name. It's just being reduced to the color of its facade, which shows like um, very characteristic and prevalent processes within uh, the colonial settler society. So um, as the physical identity of the structure cannot be changed, it can be either demolished, what actually happened to most of the well houses within this area, or it can be uh, appropriated, its urban function can be altered by both the deformation of the surroundings and by the uh, deformation of its very architectural identity. So. Um, so uh, the remaining structures, as discussed, uh, Sheikh Smurat's house, have constantly threatened the surrounding architectural production that was striving to create the sense of a national home. And to do so, it had to erase the Palestinian presence and history. So um, Sheikh Murad's house was founded, as you can see, that's the original picture from, uh, from, uh, from the 30s. It was, um, it was created by the end of the 19th century on the land belonging to Jaffa, the Palestinian port city. Um, before the first Jewish dwells of Shapira were created by the Jewish settlers in the 1924 on the orchard grants purchased from the neighborhood of uh, Saknat uh, Abu Kabir. So Sheikh Murad's house was a well house using this new technology of water pumping brought to Jaffa uh, by the Egyptians. So, um, so the small wells used to irrigate the orchards, expanded into huge houses where the merchants lived during the months of harvest and later throughout the year. And this precious red pigment that covers the house actually came from Turkey, showing how the house was inhabited by um, upper um, social class. So um, this water sebel that you can see on the eastern side of the building serve as a public fountain for drinking water. And it was put on the eastern part to serve uh, the traffic of the road from Jerusalem to Jaffa. As you can see today, the area, uh, it's quite different. It's like being inside uh, the neighborhood of uh, Shapira with those buildings around built in the 40s and in the 50s. So we can see like how the whole 
urban fabric was destroyed, the orange growth got cut down, deleting the primary function of the house, and the space got surrounded by the new building. Um, so um, after the expulsion of the Palestinians in the, during the Nakba in the 1948, the house was populated by the Jewish European um, refugees, which exemplifies, quote, the contradiction between the praxis of a settler society and the ideology of a people returning to the land of their biblical origin. So after decades of physical deterioration, the house was inhabited in the recent decade by anarchist activists and Sudanese and Eritrean asylum seekers, recently to be purchased by an art foundation, which renovated, as you can see uh, on the close picture, um, and changed it into art studios and cultural center. So this practice of gentrification throughout is globally known but um, within Israel, it always entails uh, the erasure and the obliteration of the Palestinian uh, identity and history. Um, so this practice of kind of uh, restoration and appropriation of the Palestinian architecture can be interpreted, as I argue, as a practice of trying to become native, creating a habitat that shows on one hand connectness with the urban surroundings, with the land, with the city, and on the other hand, emphasizes the conquer. So now the house uh, of Sheikh Murad cannot in any way serve its original function as well house for the orange groves, because they don't exist anymore. Uh, and by cutting those orchards, actually, it destroyed the economic strength of Jaffa is a city and its residents. The Sebel is as well destroyed. Not even the name, uh, now even the name is changed to the Red House. So functionally, physically, semantically, and linguistically, um, Sheikh Murad's house identity um, has been erased. And another, even more blunt example of conquer and erasure of story and identity track architecture is this well house on the street uh, Teresa 15 in Shapira neighborhood and within this dynamically changing surroundings. So um, the ruins of the well house, as you can see uh, on the lower part of the structures, uh, are owned by the municipality of Tel Aviv, are covered with folded, often rusty, corrugated metal panels. There are no functioning doors or windows, and here you can also see the remainings of the well house. It was kind of the pool where the water was gathering to irrigate the, um, later irrigate the orchard. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so now um, this structure is being surrounded by this newly renovated little square and the residential uh, buildings that have been popping around in the past years as the gentrification of uh, Shapira neighborhood intensified. So this building is kind of uh, a monument of Conquer. Uh, the barely seen foundation arches and storm, stones forming this Palestinian house 
um, are being uh, covered by these metal rusty panels resembling more like a I don't know, like a tin shack, a favela dwelling, rather than a luxurious residency uh, that it's most probably used to be. So the use of corrugated metal in this case is not random. The corrugated metal is used to cover construction sites, to divide spaces temporarily, it's accessible, it's cheap and it's staples. So putting it over a historic site that should be preserved and protected protected shows not only disregard to the Palestinian history of this place and its architecture, but even more emphasizes this uh, need to cover it up, to make it look like an unworthy ruin, thin shack, to make it disappear. And in front, almost in front of um, the building, uh, there's a new residential building that is, uh, interestingly enough, as the gentrification process of Shapira neighborhood is going on, is trying to mimic the architecture of the white city, this renowned um, international style with the round balconies, typical, typical uh, to the Tel Aviv and Bauhaus. So um, the gentrification of the black city cannot happen without an active change of the urban landscape. The black city has to become the white city for the right, right people, the right population, ergo Ashkenazi, meaning European descent, middle class, to move there. So being unable to resurrect the already destroyed modernist buildings or the area or another historical buildings, a new architectural tactic of mimicry is being applied. This building was built in 2013 and is imitating those visual codes uh, of this famous Tel Aviv Bauhaus within the existing framework that perceives modernism as a cherished past or as a local style. Yeah, sure, I'm almost wrapping up. <laughs> um, so on one hand, we've got this debris and ruins of a Palestinian wellhouse from the end of the 18th century. Uh, and on the other hand, we're having this uh, new phenomenon uh, of uh, this wannabe Bauhaus buildings that have been uh, erected. Uh, so, and they mark this process of architectural whitening of the black city. Um, so, um, this house, as I think, it's not going to stay very long over there. Probably very soon it's going to be either demolished or appropriated or refurbished for another cultural center or artsy place that caters a very specific culture for the very specific new designated population of this neighborhood. So um, with this short introduction, I wanted to present you those uh, two sites that show the processes taking place within uh, the black city of uh, Jaffa Tel Aviv. Thank you very much. My name is Verity Jane Keefe. I'm an artist from a fine art sculpture background, but I'm a bit of an interloper into architecture as well. I can be found 
teaching architecture and fine art at BA level and MA level at Central St Martins. That sort of sums me up straddling two camps but firmly entrenched within a an artist context. My work exists predominantly in the public realm using moving image and installation based work to explore what I describe as a really often quite complicated relationship between people and place. So it's a research based practice at its heart for want of a better blanket term. So I thought today I'd take you on a quick romp through some slides of my work. Um, the majority of my practice as Rob said in the, in the introduction exists in outer London and I suppose 14 years on I'm still 15 years on I'm still trying to work out why that is it was it a happy accident or is there something in that ge the geography the edgeland context that uh, I respond to and I think it probably is that I'm from a very underwhelming part of the West Midlands which sits in the shadow of Birmingham and Worcester um, Barrett's land industry, black country within sight. So I think I'm attracted to this uh, context and I feel safe there. <laughs> um, so today I'm going to talk mainly about Barking and Dagenham because it is a, uh, it's dominated my practice. I described my talk as an accidental love affair on accidental love affairs with Outer London, but I do go to other places. So this is in Thamesmead. I'm currently artist in residence on Thamesmead stage three for Peabody and doing other commissions around uh, Barking and Dagenham. So this love affair, it's often tumultuous, never boring, totally accidental, and I both thank and blame Muff Architecture Art in equal measure for this because I got introduced to the borough when I was working for the architecture practice back in 2005 on the folly. And I stayed. So it's this staying that I suppose I'm really unpicking within my practice. Like what happens when we stay in a place and respond to it and our practice changes with that place? What happens when you stay in this place versus, and I really don't like this way of working, it's not for me, I'm not saying no one else should work like this, but the kind of drop in, pop up, pop down, and then chip off. I, I don't work well like that. So, I'm particularly interested in what the role and potential of the artist within a regeneration context is, could and should be. The lived experience of regeneration from residents' perspectives, who often feel like regeneration is something that's being done to them, and the way it's communicated via hoardings, planning notices, which are quite hard to decode when you're living through something. So I'm trying to interrogate the notion of public in its widest transient and potential future versions of itself. And I, I show you this slide because it kind of sums up this happenstance of practice. So I was given this badge back in 2007 when I was doing a commission for the local authority and I needed to access space. I needed to access the town hall and the civic center where my camera was located. And the regeneration officer said, well, what do we call you? I said, well, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm an artist. I don't know what you want to call me. So they, they called me the Borough Artist in Residence. And this is a thing that's stuck. The buildings that this opened no longer exist, but the badge still remains, and it still uh, carries some weight in some weird way. Um, so it's like, again, it's an accident, but I'm, I'm interested in that idea of you know, the borough architect, the borough engineer, so thinking also what artists can do within that municipal condition. Regeneration, participation, consultation, collaboration, community, engagement, legacy, resilience, public, placemaking. These are all buzzwords that get chucked all over the place on hoardings, in funding applications, in artist briefs and in clients' desires. 
So I suppose I'm trying to test what these words actually mean and how working in such a way can inform and shape not just the actual built environment, but what the experience of living and passing through it is and potentially can be. So I'd like to read something that I found in the archives. So it's from a local point of view on Dagenham from 1947. So it's 71 years old. A village, a town, a city. It's more than bricks and mortar and people, greater than the sum of its parts. The lives of men leave an imprint on their surroundings and conversely their environment subtly moulds and alters lives and actions. Add to this the thousand variations of industry, geography and history and the result given an individual and distinctive character to each district that sets it apart from its neighbours in spite of superficial resemblances. What is it then that gives this place its particular flavour? And I keep coming back to this passage because it feels so, so relevant in today's London, today's Dagenham, today's everywhere, really. So this panel is addressing the destruction of a city's identity. So what are these forces that are causing this destruction? And um, what is my, our role within this? It's really bloody complicated. It's not one recipe or quick explanation. There isn't one mono-identity yet in London, thank God. But the complexity is what makes London, London. Barking is different to Dagenham. It's different to Marksgate. And they should be. The destruction, I'm, I'm also not sold totally on this word destruction, but I've inserted it in because our panel is called <laughs> destruction. But I am not sold on that. Um, the destruction... The slow, place, the slow decline of place, change. It's both painfully slow place sometimes and rapidly fast paced. It's the closure of industry, the changing faces of politics with a big P and a small P, the loss of social housing, decanting, demolition, building, factory closures, empty shops, community centres closed down, libraries without books, the rise of the BNP, the decline of the BNP, the rise of UKIP, opportunism, the decline of UKIP, a disenfranchised working class, rise Brexit, 62.4% embarking in Dagenham to leave, the near collapse of the public sector, new labour, PFI, build now, mixed use, affordable housing, acronym mania, cultural fixings, cultural sell things. So if we take Barking and Dagenham as an example, which I, I will, because I love it, historically it's a tale of two towns, one looking tentatively towards London, that's the historic borough of Barking, and the other gazing longingly towards Essex. And I would, I would suggest that these gazes still maintain within the contemporary unified borough. There is a need to value these foibles and celebrate the peculiarities and everyday brilliance of places. The urban will engulf the suburban very awkwardly. That messy, unique, vibrant edge of the city, it will be obliterated if we don't keep our eye on it. Phrases like placemaking strategy, culture-led regeneration, affordable housing, all of this stuff can be heard wafting out of local authority and developer offices all over the country. I don't think you can make places that already exist, and I don't think you can build a community with architecture alone. So, now I'm going to go off paper and go to, uh, I'm just looking at my time, I've got five, uh, two and a half minutes, but I'll take four, maybe. Um, <laughs> that's all right, Rob. <laughs> so I've been showing you slides of the Mobile Museum. I have talked to death about the Mobile Museum in public, but, so you can all find it on the internet. But for those that don't know what it is, it, started, it was conceived far too many years ago for me to even say out loud, but as a very short-term project, three months long in fact and I got Arts Council funding and I was supposed to have match funding from the local authority but that was cut in 2012 in the public sector cuts 
Fast forward two years and I embarked on a Kickstarter campaign. Some of my backers are actually sat in the room, which is really nice to see. Um, and 343 people chipped in to fund this project. So one of the things I'm always testing is this idea of the local and where it actually exists. And is it relevant, if I'm making work about Barking in Dagenham or Thamesmead, does it make sense if I'm showing it on a stage in the Royal Academy, if I'm in America, if I'm in Milan? Um, and this is something I'm always trying to test, and I, I, I think it does, because it's this zooming in and zooming out, using Barking and Dagenham as a, as a device of which to test and overlay, to workshop with residents, and to not assume that every place is exactly the same. So I converted an ex-local authority library with much love to become a museum. Um, it was built by hand. So on the right, you see uh, models. That's the evolution of council housing in the borough. And in brief, I toured the council estates of the borough. It started off empty. Barking and Dagenham, I'm not going to give you a socioeconomic uh, lesson, that's not my territory, but it's a low level of engagement. And in 2014, when this was first rolling around, it was an even lower level of engagement because there's been cultural hysteria over the last couple of years and all of a sudden everybody wants to work there. Um, so I thought, if people aren't coming to engage, what does it take to make work? So that is to go and embed myself within these different communities. So it started off empty, and I wanted to play with the language of museums and how, how we communicate something impending when I don't know what it is. And then I made a natural history collection from collecting workshops with residents, for residents, with council staff, councillors. Um, so what you see at the back is um, it's a taxonomy of aggregate from the 12 different estates because people used to love telling me about the Roman road in Dagenham. So I'm imagining in 50, 100 years' time what might be worth keeping, what's of value. These are the little models based upon the Horniman Museum's um, skeleton. There's the aggregate survey. I'm going to whiz through. Hearts Lane Estate was built on the site of Cape Asbestos, an old asbestos works. A very, very, very uh, terrible history there. Um, so rather than digging up asbestos, we played with uh, aggregate with a group of women who live on the estate and made some fake asbestos in Muscovite, thinking of how you can make something very beautiful. Uh, lots of writing. And then this is all documented. This collection is all documented as a formal um, archive alongside planning applications, um, plans, oral histories, all, so all sorts. It's a very um, comprehensive archive. The Stones of Gascoigne, 12 tower, 12 tower blocks, three of the top three are now demolished. Playing uh, Mark's Gate, so Mark making in Mark's Gate. Uh, this is Scratton's Farm, so um, we made some strange futuristic farm animals. And then I did a soil survey with a scientist because, you know, I want quite tongue-in-cheek museum references. I'm romping through. Keir Hardy Way, I was quite taken with the fact that people on Keir Hardy Way didn't know who Keir Hardy was. So it was this, I, I guess the whole approach is rather than me going in as an artist and being like, I'm going to do an art to you, because I would have got told to get the hell out. It's to go and stay, and for want of a better word, it's lurking. It's spending a lot of time, it's responding, it's talking to people, and then deciding what workshop, what activity I'm going to do in response to that, rather than going in with this pre-designed idea. And then this brings it all full circle back to the folly. Sorry, guys, there's a downer. Um, it got vandalised in 2017. It's okay, I've dealt with it, I'm all right now. Um, <laughs> But it is part of the work, and I wanted to talk about this because it seems quite prescient in terms of this destruction idea, because this is physical destruction. And so this happened a year ago and one month ago. Um, 
just just little ships basically um, who were bored and they, they didn't know what it was it was it's not personal they broke into the council grounds where it was parked so it's more of a you know it's highly complicated and I kind of I've, I've watched this tension unfold between the local authority property and these young people for a long time and unfortunately the mobile museum got caught in the crossfire so what I've been doing where I am now is thinking of how I can absorb this as part of the actual work so I've been documenting the actual destruction and the, the spoils so I kept everything the vehicle's gone RIP um, but I, I ripped out everything I've stripped out everything um, and I've been documenting it quite formally to become part of the collection and doing moments like this so thinking about how the collection can exist without the vehicle could the ethos survive so this is a copy of the Beckentree Handbook and the New Housing Act, which was uh, found in a councillor used to live in this house in Dagenham who died. And um, it's, these are some of his possessions. So I've been trying to think about how I finish. And then my last one minute. One minute? Because this, this just brings me where I am now, this idea of the test. And I haven't mentioned Ford, even though it's mentioned in the write-up. So Ford has dominated the borough since the 1930s when it arrived. The common misconception is that Beckentree was built for Ford workers. Beckentree came first and the LCC did not want Ford workers to be living in those houses at the beginning. Towards the end they were allowed to because there was a question of capacity. So I am going back to Detroit um, and Chicago and Flint the end of this year and next year. So I put in a proposal for International Development Fund for British Council and Arts Council to test this idea of the local and the artists working in the municipal in similar international contexts. So I'm having a small residency in Detroit with the planning department, with an architecture department of a University of Chicago and a art department. So trying to think about how my practice might work with similar um, socioeconomic conditions, looking at the housing context in these post-Ford landscapes. In Detroit, Ford's back with a bang. This is the stamping plant in Dagenham being demolished. So this is a 3D model that they made to show how they were going to demolish it, and then on the <laughs> which I thought was insane. And then um, <laughs> I got to go and run around to, to film and photograph in there before it was demolished. These were the houses for the demolition workers on site, which I quite liked. And the mess room. And that's me. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, it's great to be here. My name is Rhiannon. Um, I'm a poet and I'm a researcher with Arab Foresight, and I'm also studying a course called Narrative Environments at Central St. Martins. Um, so, I'm going to be looking today at uh, the emotional impact of our surroundings and how that in turn kind of shapes the way that inhabitants within a site interact with each other. And I'm going to be specifically focusing on buffer zones, uh, no man's lands, and other sort of sites of ruin that have become almost monumentalized. Um, so I've been thinking about the way that when we move through a space, we're taking a psychogeographic journey as well as a physical one, uh, because of the way that we're constantly streaming feedback from the architecture and the scenery that surrounds us. And that can be on a, a sort of personal, emotional level, um, taking into account personal memory. But it can also uh, come from the, uh, the ways in which our surroundings guide us, the way they might block us or allow entry, um, and therefore create either welcomeness or hostility. Uh, so the really interesting thing, I think, is then to what extent um, do these structures and surroundings affect us? And I'd like to argue that the design of a space can go beyond simply evoking emotion um, 
and actually impact social relations on a much larger scale within a particular region. Um, so how is such an effect achieved? Um, part of the impact of architecture for me personally is the way that it can transcend time to a certain extent and take you to a different time. Um, and that, for me, ties back to Foucault's writings on heterotopias of time, um, which he refers to as spaces that cause us to break with our traditional time by preserving the appearance, atmosphere, and therefore the behaviours of a different period. Um, so in other words, by manifesting through its contents and its appearance um, our fixation on a particular chunk of history, um, a heterotopic place can sort of prevent us from fully experiencing the present. And I think it's arguable that we can then, if focusing on that time, um, prevent ourselves from planning for a better future. Uh, so the Cypriot buffer zone is, I think, a perfect example of this because it not only uh, traps in time a particular period of conflict, but it's also managed to preserve um, a societal attitude of conflict. Um, just for some background context, the buffer zone consists of 346 uh, kilometres of wild, unused land, um, cordoned off and left inaccessible following the 1974 Turkish invasion of the island, and uh, during which, or after which rather, the majority of Turkish Cypriots were relocated to the north and Greek Cypriots to the south. Um, as a result, the dividing zone in the middle there is um, full of these homes and businesses and livelihoods that people had to abandon and is really symbolic for a lot of Cypriots of the loss of homes, livelihoods, but also loved ones who were killed during the war. Um, so for the last nine months or so, I've been studying the area and I've been exploring the role of symbolic infrastructure um, at and around and inside the border of really dredging up these wartime memories and kind of keeping them alive and keeping alive the prejudice between Turkish Cypriots and Greek Cypriots. Um, because I feel like it maintains a really culturally unsustainable kind of social division on the island. Um, so, as you can see, buildings within the buffer zone have stagnated in this post-war um, kind of state, and they've also now got the added neglect of time. And um, I feel like there's a really interesting mirroring between this completely frozen strip of land and the kind of frozen way that prejudice has been kept alive on the island, almost as though it's a tradition. Um, so, because although these intercommunity tensions existed long before the war and were part of the um, reason for the invasion, um, now this kind of othering is manifested by the land itself. And it's kind of reiterated, therefore, symbolically on a daily basis every time somebody sees this area or passes through the, um, the buffer zone. So, um, there have been, there has also been sort of numerous um, failed political talks on things like unification, things like demilitarization. Um, they're always looking at ways of solving what's come to be known as the Cyprus problem. But I think that what often gets missed is the sort of social forensics of the zone. And I think that probably one of the main reasons that the, so the Cyprus problem remains unsolved is the fact that this land is a literal slice of time. And from it leaks these old-fashioned prejudices throughout the rest of the island. Um, I'm sorry. So I've been going back for research trips and mainly focusing on the parts of the, the border of the buffer zone and the interior of the buffer zone that you can reach through the capital city of Nicosia. Um, and these are sites that are passed through and passed by by hundreds of people on a daily basis. So I was really interested to see what kind of things people get exposed to um, as part of their daily lives. Um, and uh, it's quite interesting because the infrastructure of the, the border is really a patchwork in that it's sloppily informal in places and it's formal to the point of hostile in other places. So you'll find um, passport control, uniformed officials, 
Um, there's a massive sculpture of steel and concrete at the Lydra Street checkpoint, which bears the names of um, Greek Cypriots missing in action. But then just a little while later, you've got these kinds of informal barriers of rusting oil drums and barbed wire. And whereas at some points you can't see the buffer zone at all, it's completely uh, behind padlock doors. Elsewhere, you can see straight into the crumbling buildings and there's bullet holes that have been left. It's sort of, everything's unhealed and quite raw still. And so I think it tells this story, I guess, of um, violence and silence in that there's um, a real obvious problem, but we're encouraged to just sort of hurry on by through to the other side and, and not acknowledge that it's there. And there's almost a, a bit of a broken windows theory that's been applied to the whole region. Because although in the past few years, people of grassroots campaigns have sort of been springing, springing up to, to challenge um, and ask for some change, for the majority of the last 44 years, people do just accept this site of ruin as um, part of Cyprus's identity. And I think that's really um, sort of culturally unsustainable and it just reiterates the fact that it's normal to accept the difference between Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots. So, uh, in addition to these sort of larger scale structures, I found this really interesting layer of um, inscription, I guess, from a more human source. And that was things that I found people had actively left at the buffer zone on a symbolic kind of level. And it included things like nationalist graffiti, nationalist literature, um, uh, notes of grief that people had tied to fences and things like that. Um, but then there were some things that were a bit more, I guess, obvious in their message, like a a huge photograph that's permanently installed at the Lydra Palace checkpoint, which depicts a uh, Greek Cypriot man being beaten to death by Turkish soldiers. And I just think there's something really provocative behind sending people into the predominantly Turkish Cypriot north with that kind of image in mind. And it's exactly this kind of uh, imagery that just drives a wedge between the two communities. But it's kind of ritually reinforced. Um, this was another one that I found that was uh, really unusual, which is a Christmas tree. It's a bit difficult to see because it was in a glass case, but uh, December, in December I found this tree at the Lydra Street checkpoint decorated with um, images of weeping mothers and uh, missing victims and barbed wire, which is fascinating because it, it makes me feel like um, when you're in that site, when you're around that zone, grief and blame is such a normal thing to feel that it becomes something you decorate your tree with. Um, so by looking at the way all these symbols and structures kind of come together and deconstructing their meaning, um, you get to the point where there's just a, a coalescence of stories all telling the same tale of grief and prejudice. And then that's what forms a spatial identity that has those exact same features and just reiterates it to the inhabitants. Um, the effect, I think, after that is large scale because once Cyprus becomes defined by um, its emotionally radioactive sort of fracture, which it has come to be, it then faces the rest of the world as an island with a culturally unsustainable identity, uh, and that's an identity of division. Um, so what to do about this kind of thing? Um, I've been working on a project called Fracture Edit over the, the past year or so, and um, it responds to this clustering of negative identity in Cyprus by proposing counter-inscriptions that display Cypriot perspectives of the buffer zone that are a bit more progressive um, veering away from the usual lamentations. Um, I feel that the location of the buffer zone and the fact that it's in such a state of ruin actually lends it quite a lot of potential because it's just begging for a, a sort of revamp and its, um, its situation being sandwiched between the two communities I mean that it could end up being this symbol of cultural hybridity 
instead quite easily if it was allowed to. But we have to start communicating this potential and communicating these kinds of stories as people pass through the buffer zone rather than the negative stories that remind people to grieve. Um, so I collaborated with some other Greek Cypriot and Turkish Cypriot poets and we started writing poetry about the buffer zone, about the way we feel about it as a site of potential. And um, I then sort of manifested these poems as copper photo etchings and uh, also cotton hangings, which were intended for installation within and around the zone. Um, and the intention of these is to begin slowly forming this new hopeful identity. So um, it's a very forensic way of looking at the problem, but I do think that it's just as necessary as the more broad political discussions that happen offering these broader solutions like demilitarization, like unification. Um, and I think that's because these talks rarely do consider the, the sort of low-level ways in which socially and architecturally um, grief and prejudice and division is entrenched on the island. So if bit by bit we can begin to replace these aspects of hostile architecture um, with projections of the buffer zone that normalise it as um, useful, as potentially culturally rich, and as a unifying seam as opposed to a dividing scar on the island, then I think we can slowly begin to change the way that people feel as they move through the space and as they move through Lydra Street and Nicosia, seeing the outer aspects of it. And I think that, in turn, is then going to change the way they, they behave within the space, the way they think about it, and the way, ultimately, they treat each other as members of opposite communities within that space. Um, so I'd just like to close with the idea that um, I feel like we shouldn't underestimate the emotional impact of um, the structural features around us and our built environment no matter how subtle and no matter how informally established that architecture is. Um, I think our surroundings shape our social longings, but they also reiterate our social longings. And in a world that we're living in at the moment, which is increasingly riddled with polarity, I think it's crucial to look beyond the, um, the typical role of infrastructure and consider as well how it can be designed to really foster togetherness and solidarity within a community. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, all four of you. Those are really interesting, really diverse ways of, of approaching the subject. Start a question to the panel, um, and I have other, other questions as well, but I'd like the audience to have a chance to um, make their contributions as well. And there is a microphone, I'm told, somewhere. Oh, they're being sorted out at the back at the moment. So... Um, Yes, the, the question that I had um, is there's a lot of exploration of, um, at the moment in terms of identity and the politics of identity uh, about what mi makes us different. And um, what I was interested about the Cyprus uh, example is what makes us the same, what, how those identities overlap and multi-layered identities and as ways of defending the multicultural and the cosmopolitan um, words that are often used as insults these days. Um, but is there a danger when we are trying to protect maybe marginal or vulnerable identities in a city that we are building walls, that we're building separation at the, at the same time as reinforcing our own identity? Um, sort of there's an act of creating otherness there when an identity is reinforced. Yeah, I definitely think there's some truth in that. And I think um, 
that's why spaces, perhaps small spaces within other spaces that really welcome everyone, I guess, in a way, are quite important. And um, one, of the, one of the interesting things that I would have put in the presentation um, if there was a bit more time, perhaps, because I, whilst over in Cyprus, I found a, a cafe that um, was situated within the buffer zone. And that sort of encouraged people from both communities to come over. And just simple things like the fact that it took both currencies. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's completely unique, that place. It's a one-off. There's not lots of them around the island. But the installation of more places like that, I think, would make a huge difference. Because it's not just saying, um, I don't know, this is a place only for people who agree on this. It, it accepts everybody, which I think is really, really important. And Maya, I, I think... There's a lot of examples um, in Israel and Palestine of, of um, the past being manipulated as well as the, as the future uh, in, in the creation of competing identities. Um, are there any positive examples that you know of where those are being challenged and people are being brought together to understand a, a, a sharing of the land? So I'm, I'm not an expert on Cyprus, so I cannot relate to how is it in Cyprus. Uh, I don't have enough information historically about it and politically. But um, I think what it has to be said in the context of uh, Jaffa and Tel Aviv and in the wider uh, context of uh, Palestine, that the process of colonization, it's not in the past. It's still going on. So it's difficult when you have, like, the privilege and the colonized uh, society and the colonized society so it's difficult to expect from uh, from the colonized to be willing when they're undergoing all the time um, this kind of uh, physical oppression whether it's happening inside of the state of Israel or whether it's happening in the occupied territories of West Bank and Gaza or in the Palestinian diaspora. So to have this kind of expectation, I think uh, politically is is wrong. So all this, also this center that I showed you in the uh, Sheikh Murad's house. So they put over there this art culture center, whatever. So they put over there this graffiti, and it's written love in Hebrew and in Arabic, and they try to what they think that they're trying to connect or whatever but uh, between the communities but actually uh, they are catering one very specific identity and because of the restriction of the time of this presentation maybe I didn't give enough background about those two uh, neighborhoods but uh, uh, it's not only about the Palestinian identity and the Jewish-Israeli identity, but it's also about the, specifically um, this um, visual, uh, and not only visual, also physical narrative of the Jewish-European identity and culture which is being imposed because actually Shapira and Neveshanan are the most, uh, ironically, the black city are the most... Uh, heterogeneous um, ethnically neighborhoods and they have also the Jewish Mizrahi meaning from the uh, Jews coming from the Arab and Muslim countries communities and this identity is also being oppressed so it's I think it's much more multi-faced and when we're looking at it we have we cannot forget that we're not talking about something from the past we're talking about the process that is going on 
And as my last slide showed, it's like this gentrification and whitening is also um, actively enforced by architects. I, I want to ask that as well, <laughs> but particularly moving on from that, the artists occupying that house and then making superficial responses that actually cover things over. Do you worry in your work that you're being asked to art wash sometimes and how do you avoid it? Um, I avoid it by writing my own briefs. <laughs> That's something I failed to talk about. I, uh, yeah, I think to, to pick up on that point as well, I think in, in London we have a, an awful situation. The thing that has historically made London one of the best cities in the world is that everybody, no matter what your background, how rich you are, how poor you are, is able to have a slice of that city. And you have rich people, poor people, anybody living side by side each other, and it's that tension that I think has made the city tick from the central right out to the edges. The edges used to be the place of suburban dwelling, where people went because they wanted to have a garden, those sorts of things, but you could still have a flat in zone one, and, and I think we're emptying, the, we're emptying the city from the inside out and completely transforming the edge of the city. That, that's one point to pick up on that, yeah. because I think it's happening in London in a, a really, really quite frightening way. Through the housing. Mm -hmm. Through housing, and I think we have to talk about preca like precarity, precarity of our workforce, precarity of tenancies, and if you move, if all, if people on low-income jobs, minimum wages, are having to live at the edge of the city and travel into the centre of the city to do their minimum wage job, they can't afford. To, it's it's really frightening things that are happening. But then the art washing thing, yeah, I think there's some terrible things happening in, London, in, well, in the UK at the moment with that. The role of the artist being in, inserted directly to be the face of, of said change or regeneration. And I have gone prematurely grey to avoid that because I, 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 I think the power I have in my practice that I write my own briefs and I'm interested in working with a huge number of stakeholders and inventing a project and then finding the funding to follow. So rather than being like, oh, hey, hey, developer comes to me. Yeah. Um, and one example, so the, the residency I'm doing in Peabody is a test. I'm working for a developer who's also a housing association, who's also my landlord in Hackney. It's very complicated. Um, <laughs> and, but, but Peabody are both a housing association and a landlord. So there's a commercial arm, but there's also, there's also the duty of care as a housing association. So I've, I'm commissioned by the regeneration team and one of the things I'm trying really hard to do is I've set up a community press and I'm trying to get people to relinquish editorial control to give residents voice within the regeneration cycle. So I feel that's a powerful move that I can do that I would argue is not art washing. I think art washing would be yeah. Yeah. <laughs> branded front and centre by Peabody. Yeah. <laughs> Claire, you mentioned your talk about whether a city's identity can be distorted, whether it's always changing, being reimagined, and whether it's Doha or anywhere else. But isn't a key difference about that process of change, whether it's voluntary or being enforced, whether it's out of your control, and what kind of... And you've, we've seen that in the study that the UCL lab did in LGBT nightlife. Um, has that been a theme in other areas of research the, the UCL has done? Of course, there are many different factors yeah. that affect how cities change, and some are enforced and some happen spontaneously. 
and some have negative effects and some have positive effects and some have negative effects that then later turn out to have some positive effects and so I think it's a very kind of complicated process um, and of course the problem is you need to study them these processes over a long period of time to really understand you know what the impact is so I mean in terms of the LGBTQ venue closures we know that a lot of venues have closed and we know that um, amongst other kinds of venues as well music and cultural yep. venues in general we know that that's affecting the identity of particular areas of the city but we don't really know what's going to come out of that yep. process I suppose um, I thought one interesting thing I, I, I heard about relatively recently that's come out of that resistance to the closures is um, the uh, planning permission for the rebuilding of the Joiners Arms where Tower Hamlets has built into the planning permission a requirement that not only is a club bar club replaced but it's a gay bar mm. um, which is a first I think anywhere and, and it, I think when those pressures are producing some inventive answers sometimes, aren't they? Yeah. I also wanted to ask you about universities. Um, are they always change agents for good change? No, I mean, absolutely not. And there's a long history of universities, particularly in the States, being regarded as very much as urban predators, if you yeah. look at Chicago. And, in fact, the case studies that I looked at in New York, Columbia, very long-running controversy around its Manhattanville campus development and the impact on the West Harlem community. So, no, but what, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that there is also this sort of growing discourse around the responsibility of universities to ensure that they do have positive yeah. impacts. And I think the more that that grows and the more pressure that comes to bear on universities to actually live, live up to that... Um, you know, the better it is for cities. And I think the fact is that universities are, you know, along with some others, they're powerful institutions and they do have capacity um, to do things. Um, and they are also centres of critical thought, at least in theory. <laughs> and so, you know, one would hope that amongst, you know, potential developers and other agents of change on city landscape, universities should be in a position yeah. to do something good. And the more we talk it up, the more likely they are to do it. <laughs> but I think also, you know, the question of identity, it's very open-ended and yeah. at the same time, can, I think there's a danger of essentializing identity. Yeah. Um, so it's a kind of, it's a complicated conversation and also different contexts are so different. If we're looking at Cyprus, yeah. Israel, East London, Barking and and Dagenham, you have to contextualise these discussions yeah. quite carefully, I think. Yeah. Anybody in the audience? I've lived in London, WC1, for a very long time, and the student population goes up and up and up. And I'm surrounded by hundreds, tens of, tens of hundreds of people who have no vote, who go to no... So when you go to hustings before the local elections, no students, nobody. Um, there are people who don't effectively have a full stake in our area. And I'll just take one more thing, which is the correlation between a huge student population and housing. And I jump from London to Newcastle, where whole areas of Jesmond are completely empty out of term time because they're just 
little cash cows, houses that aren't maintained properly, filled with students, term time, and then handed on next term. The equation's gone wrong, that's what I'm saying. Interestingly, um, in Exeter, the, uh, there's a neighbourhood plan being adopted uh, to limit student housing in one area there. I think it's the St. David's area. St. James's area. In, in, in Dagenham, the Civic Centre has just been um, uh, taken over by Coventry University in London. So this is the, the past municipal seat. It was the old town hall, and it's now Coventry University in Dagenham, which is... There's very peculiar things happening in the UK within higher education and the university situation, but I do believe the debate, the criticality of the debate is alive in the classrooms and amongst um, tutor networks. Sorry, I was just wanting to respond to the gentleman about access. Um, I think you forget that we are, you know, we suffer quite a considerable amount of terrorist attacks and actually the universities have to have responsibility of care. So I don't think I would like you walking into any university without actually, you know, saying, I'm here to visit somebody. And I think um, King's Cross, if you want to go and see students, I think you need to go to King's Cross and have a look around there, what's happening. And I think think the debate, as you say, is constantly going on. My son's just been in Portsmouth, which Portsmouth is, is a university town, and they're, you know, they're everywhere. And I think they also are now working much more with the community, who most of them are employed by the university as well. So, anyway, just that comment. I mean, that's an interesting point, isn't it, about the the, uh, impact of fearfulness on identity and a willingness to uh, uh, be open and share one's identity or to be closed off. Have you seen London or places changing as a result of... Well, even... I mean, I think... Actually, the statistics are terror, terror attacks have gone down over the decades in the UK, but um, the fear has risen. Um, does, do I'm sorry, but, but can I address it, even though I'm not from London? Yeah. Uh, I think the problem is the structural problem. We should uh, analyse the structures and what you're saying. I'm sorry, but I'm appalled by this kind of statement. Like, I'm appalled by this kind of, like trying to put this kind of uh, like imaginary uh, fear about the terrorism in London yes yes it's an imaginary fear we should dis- discuss the structures and we should talk about and when we talk about accessibility then it's not only the physical accessibility of the universities as, as he said that uh, they're inaccessible uh, physically, but also about accessibility for different kind of groups of people. And if we don't address the context and the colonial past of the UK, and if we don't talk about it, and we don't talk about how different universities and institutions re- kind of reinforce it, and how architecture can reinforce it, and how we c- what strategies can we uh, apply to decolonize our spaces, then I'm sorry, but then this discussion, it's just like a white Eurocentric uh, discourse, which uh, particularly I'm not so much interested in participating in. in, Like, I'm really, I'm sorry, I just wanted to express like how appalled I'm feeling. Gentlemen here. 
Hello. I wasn't going to come in, but I will because um, I actually work in Goldsmiths and I just want to take up a point that some of the university campuses are accessible. So let's just be really clear that it isn't a case of um, it's either one or the other. So for me, what this kind of points to is the complexity that we need to be really careful, I hope, today about kind of being very absolute in our claims um, because I don't think we're going to get too far. So I think what it kind of reveals for me is like we, we hear about, you know, kind of a, a point of view there about students not being engaged. Students were really engaged uh, and are engaged in, in many issues. And what we've got to look at here in London and elsewhere in the UK is the complexity of the structural constraints placed on universities. So, for example, you do make a valid point about when students pay fees, you, you get into identities around being a consumer, not just being a student. But to kind of look at why this has come about, and probably when you kind of look at London and generation and the number of vacant properties, you've got to think, I suppose, of the wider political context about kind of these decisions that get made and then impact us on us all in our reality. So it's thinking, I think, two points. One, let's remember to construct the structural constraints. And two, let's be careful that we're not getting into any binary discussions. Um, I just have two quick questions. The first is um, for uh, Claire. Um, you talk about the identity of UCL. I wonder what you think about um, UCL, Qatar, and other sort of extensions of, of um, universities that have very strong identities and how that identity is then used to, I'm assuming, because it has a special sort of value, that it, it can then be reused in a different context. So I'm really interested in that. And then um, for the rest of the panel, I just wonder what you think about maybe creating a franchise of the mobile museum and seeing if that sort of way of archiving could actually start to heal the rifts and document um, the divisions that you've identified in a sort of more fun way. UCL Qatar, which is closing down or has closed down, is part of a multi-campus site in Qatar. So it's one of many different university brands on that site. And it actually occupied space within the premises for Georgetown University. So I wouldn't say that in terms of a UCL identity, it had a massive impact. I I think let's, there's obviously a lot of academics in the room, let's get, mm-hmm. it, get away from this for a moment. If we bring it back to London um, and ask the panel and the audience about what, what, what they think about the future of those, uh, mm-hmm. the multiplicity of London identities and um, are they under threat or are they just changing and I... I worry that that kind of mosaic of communities which some people argue is an illusory mosaic because you're sort of different people ships passing in the night even if you're occupying the same space but a mosaic nonetheless compared to say Paris where or Sydney or, or many American cities where the, you know the core and periphery have entirely different identities that are other to each other and hostile to each other. Oh, I find it really hard to answer this without sounding really depressed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but to be positive, London is really, really, really old and ancient and resilient and has survived so much stuff, so much crap, like waves of like horror, and has come back. 
uh, bounced back, reshaped, shifted, adapted, grown, shrunk, swallowed up, spat out. And I, and I think if I'm going to, the long game, this is like probably what I spent all my time in the pub talking about with my friends. Like long term, if we're talking four, five hundred years, it's just going to be all right, isn't it? It might survive. I think human, <laughs> human. Um, I'm not sure what state the city will be in, the planet will be in, because that's a whole other arc of conversation. But I think the short term, we are really, 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 really messing things up. Um, I'm, I'm longing for a new government. I'm longing for some new planning laws. Um, I'm longing for a bit more planning knowledge to get put into the hands of residents um, to just kind of reclaim a bit of the balance a little bit. But I, I just think this, this emptying out... I think about where I, so I live. I've said I'm a Peabody tenant. My street is a really mixed bag. They took over the Crown Estate, and in my... Victorian flat, there's three flats. Downstairs, I have an 84-year-old who's on an old fair rent tenancy. She pays £220 a month for exactly the same size flat as me, with, but with a garden. Above, I have a key worker who's a teacher. They pay £30 more than me because they're on the top floor, so they don't have sound overspill, but we both have the same 80% market rent. Now, when Jean dies downstairs, because she will, because she's in her late 80s, that flat will go, back out, will go out to the private market. So... This shit, and I love this mixed bag on my street. And I think that that's this mosaic. And it doesn't just exist in my house. If we zoom back out, this is this emptying out of the centre and spitting out to the edges. And I think if we looked at the edge of London, not just Dagenham, all over, all over the edge of London, there's these large, large, large-scale developments happening that are full of promise to fix the housing crisis and accommodate this massive growth. But I'm not sure who can afford to be there. Anybody? Very keen hand in the air. Yeah. Uh, hello, my name's Claire. I'm an architect. I have a particular interest, both in a practical and theoretical sense, in helping to create thriving communities. Mm. Of course, particularly, I want to try and address um, Verity's depression here. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I absolutely share it. I think there, there's something that's common uh, in relation to identity between you know, what it is you have all been saying, and that is really how do we afford value to social heritage. And if we can afford a value to it, whatever it is, if we can pin it down, then how do we actually set about protecting it? And I think, if, you were, if you'll allow me just to define social heritage, because I think it's so many things to so many people, but from what you've been saying, um, really, it's an expression of identity at one level. And secondly, I suppose, it's the knowledge and uh, also the way in which different social groups appropriate, appropriate that places where they live. And so if we, if we can call that social heritage, I think in order to protect it or to value it, first of all, we're going to have to have, find some way of assessing it. And as Verity says, I think that's all about engaging with people to do that, with diverse groups. Um, we then need the planning policies in order to uh, pin uh, those that value to something because without that we can't do anything and I'm at least vaguely optimistic that the draft new London plan is talking in the right direction but there are no policies to stick any of this to and then even if we can do that how are we then 
going to enforce it. And I think if we don't do any of these things, we are ending up with both the urban and suburban empty or faceless places, and we will not, in four or five hundred years, have a rich and diverse place. Um, can I ask the panel, um, I want to contrast two of the speakers against two of the other speakers, because uh, in both the Israel and the um, Cyprus case, there's clearly a point at which a massive change has happened, and you're wanting to revisit that. In the case of London, there is no particular point at which the world has changed, that every city, every part of London will keep evolving. And I'm interested to ask you who should decide what becomes the sacred moment, and who should decide that something should change. An obvious example is somewhere like Brick Lane, which has gone through at least four transitions in terms of communities over the past hundred or so years. And it would be difficult to say that each generation of migrant to Brick Lane uh, should be the only identity with which Brick Lane is associated. So who, who makes that decision as to what is preserved and who says it's fine to kind of grow organically? It's not one or the other. You can have layered identities and overlapping identities and multiple identities and have an identity as based on your gender or your profession or your sexuality or your, or your neighbourhood. And, um, and, and those can... And I think the most interesting places, um, London in particular, are where fragments and, and layers of all those different identities survive over time. And I think the fear we're seeing at the moment is the rate of change and the comprehensiveness of it is, is, is removing those layers. I think at the moment one of the problems is that a lot of this, 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 this stuff is overlaid on and is delivered from a top-down position. And, and I think we need to get away from that culture and actually with this, I, I, don't, I like using words like empowerment and participation because I think they're really getting uh, mistreated at the moment. But I do think that we need to do this a bit more, top down and bottom up. Because I don't think that, if you look at the Hackney context, that isn't done by design. And I find myself talking about this a lot in Barking and Dagenham. So, oh, we want what's happened in Hackney, you know, that, that to happen here. So this is the top down recipe for gentrification. Now, in, in Dalston, you have the Turkish community that are wedded to Dalston. They're huge landowners there and their businesses are great. And I loved seeing them make loads of money out of the hipster pound. I really enjoy that. I think that they... Great. But the recipe there is that there's lots of industrial space. They own up loads of land. All of those houses have basements. The infrastructure's there ready to go. Hackney had a really great housing stock. I moved to Hackney in the late 90s, early 2000s because it was dead cheap, not because it was cool. Um, so in, if you're in Dagenham, which is designed to be purely suburban, and you don't have this, the third of the footprint of Dagenham and Barking is the Beckentree Estate. There are no light industry little pockets, not many. Um, the, the light industry there is is still functioning. You can't then just design mass gentrification. And I fear that this is what's trying to happen top down with this promise of tens of thousands of new homes saying that this will have a dialogue with what's already there. That's an, that's an impossible task. Um, and that won't happen in a very, that won't happen at one critical moment. I think that's going to happen over a really long period of time. Um, even the, the time I've been working in that borough, one London borough, one tiny part of the world, uh, over 14 years, so much has changed, but also so little has changed. You have the, it's the, dis, you have the disenchanted white working class there that feel like their borough is being taken away from them. It's really, really complex. 
Maya, who are the gatekeepers in Israel-Palestine about what's remembered and which layer of history comes to the fore? Okay, so, so currently, is the, obviously, the uh, colonial uh, narrative is in place, and it's being in place for the past uh, uh, 70 years, which is obviously, we can say it, is obviously wrong. So those pre processes um, that I was trying to show within um, Nevesha and Shapira, they, like, they foster and they impose this uh, oppressive narrative trying to really literally and physically and also ideologically to whiten the city and to erase not only its history or the, the Palestinian history, uh, but also its, uh, its presence um, and the history of the Mizrahi residents, etc. So, uh, so until there's... Uh, uh, the structural change and the, the colonization process and actually because you asked me before there are these kind of uh, ideas uh, of uh, imagining how the colonization process of uh, Palestine uh, could look like and there are those groups like for instance uh, Zohot and the colonizer who are talking about it and also trying to imagine um, uh, and to put, um, uh, imagine together with, uh, with the Palestinians the coming back and the return of the Palestinian uh, refugees who are being dispersed in the biggest uh, diaspora all over the world. Uh, so, um, um, yeah, so it's, it's shortly answering your question. Thank you. There's I was a question just going to say that oh, you, you can always have a referendum that doesn't always work either. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I think also when we talk about it, we should look about positions of power. So we cannot, we cannot equalize, we cannot have, like Swiss style, have a referendum. So we cannot equalize be, between, uh, we have to ask who has, when we're asking about like who has the right to decide, we have to analyze it like really deeply within the specific context. So mm -hmm. it's just, okay, so yes, when we look who's voting, for instance, in Israel, like we see the results of the voting, but the question is who is allowed to vote? So who is allowed to speak and whose voices are being constantly silenced and marginalized? And that's, I think, the yeah. question that we should address. Okay. Okay. Um, I suppose this follows on a bit from what you just said, but I'm here, up oh, here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was interested in, in the way this government's used the term, or well, particularly Theresa May has used the term hostile environment um, in her policies and in the continuing kind of um, impact that's had on communities such as the Windrush, um, what's called the Windrush generation. And I wondered if, if you had any ideas about how that might have impacts on the city and the identity of the city and whether the term hostile environment had a kind of spatial relevance in some way as well or whether that's, that's a term that can be understood purely socially. So what might the links be between hostility of um, social and, and spatial identities, I suppose? Can I, before we answer that, there's another one more question, I think. My question is for Maya and I'm a little bit drawing with the Cyprus presentation as well. 
Um, when you're talking about the other, I'm curious what are your thoughts about the remaining Palestinians living in Jaba and how their identity, how they perceive it with their history being erased before their eyes, the lands transforming in front of them. And I'm connecting it with the Cyprus presentation a little bit because you're talking about these buffer zones, these borders, how they can actually change the way people relate to each other and feel about each other. And if you actually see this same opportunity in this hyphen you're talking about between Jaffa and Tel Aviv, what do you do with, with, these, with these buffer zones? How do you connect between this black city and the white city? And what about the identity of the people who are still there, the Palestinians who are still living in Java? How do they perceive themselves right now? And what opportunities do they have to actually form their identity and create this sense of continuity? Yes, there's a question there, isn't that generally for our creators and designers about yes, how you bridge hostile environments and um, bridge dividing walls and the use of the term hostile environment within a poly immigration policy sense. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the term hostile environment is outrageous, being, uh, just being thrown around and I think all it's going to do is make people really, re well what it is doing is making people feel really... Um, disenfranchised and really, really angry. And I think we're seeing that in, well, not just with the Windrush case, I think that this could be overlaid on the Grenfell conversation. There's a certain anger that's going on with the, with the dislocation between the policy that's being talked about here and how it's being delivered down here. And I can only see that getting, um, getting worse in the short term. I, mean, I, I thought what was interesting about the hostile environment term was is that it doesn't acknowledge at all the spatial dimensions of um, the impact that all those different communities have had on, this, on the physical landscape, the spatial landscape of London, which of course has been incredibly positive and politicians only need to go and actually walk around the streets of London to get a much, much better understanding of what all these different communities together have contributed to the growth and the identity of London as it is now. Answering this also very um, complex question, um, I would like to say first, like with, within the Jaffa and the history, so we have to remember that after the Nakba and the 48 expulsion, uh, there were like around 2,000 Palestinians left out of the city, which now currently there are like around um, 40,000 um, living there within the whole area of uh, Tel Aviv Jaffa, which has, uh, just to give you some kind of background, uh, 450,000 uh, residents. So, um, um, so just so we have some kind of grasp. And I, I will quote Muhammad um, Abu Shadi, the resident of Jaffa, because uh, being myself uh, not Palestinian, but um, uh, I'm not going to talk about how Palestinians for them, I'm, so I'm going to quote him. Um, so he says, if they could, they would sweep it, all of it. They do not care about our feelings, about who we are and what we are, because it belongs to others, to blacks, to Africans, to Muslims, to Arabs. And I think it really summarizes like this kind of state of uh, trying to survive uh, the segregating processes that are 
uh, happening uh, there. Thank you. Uh, just to follow up with, yeah. um, oh, sorry. Uh, with okay. regards to the um, Cypriot buffer zone, I think because it's such a stark change going through, um, you go from what seems like a normal kind of uh, high street to uh, wasteland and something that feels a lot less developed. Um, I think that structure, sort of the built environment does have a huge role and I think that building spaces that feel safe and shared for both communities is going to have a huge impact because I've already seen it have a huge impact on a sort of small beginning scale. Um, and I think as well, like you say, the, the fact that it's, it's similar to that hyphen, the buffer zone is like a physicalised mm. version of that hyphen almost, and it mm. bridges the two communities because there are actually so many commonalities as well as differences, and, and possibly there's more in common. And the um, museum does it in a different mm. way, doesn't it? I, suppose. Mm. I think what, what, what's interesting is that uh, it's come through in various presentations is the... Uh, importance of an honest and authentic narrative um, if, 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 if to underpin change and engagement. Um, but I think we've run out of time, unfortunately. So thank you to the panel for, and thank you for this question. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.